We were left last week with a question, a question that we find in verse number 11. So we'll be reading verse 11 through verse 28, because the remaining verses in the chapter are the response to the question we were left with. So Hebrews chapter 7 and verse number 11, just to find our place once again, the theme of this whole section of Hebrews is that of the priesthood. In particular, a contrast between the priests that the Jewish or Hebrew Christians would have been very familiar with. These were Levites, and so we call it a Levitical priesthood because every priest had to be from the tribe of Levi. It was very important. It was in the law of Moses that the priests needed to be of this particular tribe. There were special conditions around all of that. Uh, And then uh, there were hundreds of priests all throughout the generations and uh, thousands and thousands of different uh, sacrifices uh, sacrificed, and uh, a lot of history around it all. And what we're learning about is a different priesthood altogether from the Levitical priesthood, and that, of course, is the priesthood of Jesus. Let's look at it in verse number 11, and we'll actually read to the rest of the chapter. So tonight, there will be a few places we'll be turning, and we'll be looking back at different passages in the Bible. So It will require a little extra attention, and I know that can be difficult sometimes after work on a Wednesday, but but there are some important lessons that I hope we can uh, find some encouragement in through working through this passage. So verse 11, if there for perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest? should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron. For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And yet it, and it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek there ariseth another priest who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect. But the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest, for those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins, And then for the people's, for this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath, which was since the law, 
maketh the Son, who is consecrated forevermore. Have you ever tried to fix a problem in your life the cheap way and lived to regret it? One of the most frustrating things I've experienced in my life is an ownership battle over a shed I had in my backyard. So our first house that Heidi and I purchased, and well, we, I say purchased, the bank helped us purchase, and, but it was our house, we could do what we want, we could knock down walls and paint and, and all of those different things, and we were excited, I was excited because it had a big shed in the backyard. And uh, I thought this was going to be really useful. Um, It would keep stuff dry. It would keep stuff out of the way. It was safe. It was secure. It had a padlock thing on the front of it. It had a shingled roof, windows. This was going to be great. And so we proceeded to move into the house and move stuff in there. And uh, although I thought this would be a great home for a lot of the things that I cared about, A lot of the animals in the neighborhood had that same feeling. We had an entire family of raccoons that lived under it, and not just a family, we had multiple generations of families that would call that underneath place home. And so I would get calls because it wasn't a large yard, and we had, uh, by that time, we ended up with three little girls, that there's, there's raccoons running around, and For some reason, my wife didn't feel like it was real safe for them, and so I'd have to come home and try to scare them away and try to figure out a way to to get the raccoons out from under the shed. There were a couple skunks that were reported under there as well, but the frustrating group were the squirrels and the chipmunks. So the previous owner of the shed had made it himself. This was not Amish quality. Uh, if you go inside, it, you know, the window was just a window that they had pulled out of a house somewhere, and, and you could just tell the way the whole thing was built, it was just miscellaneous two-by-fours that he had lay, laying around. and Everything was kind of cobbled together, and it looked good from the outside, but the floor was just random pieces of plywood. There was electrical that you kind of see where it came out of the ground on one end and the other. It was just Romex that you get at the hardware store, not even the stuff that's really supposed to be in the ground. And uh, so as I got a little bit more acquainted with the shed, I realized that there were some, some problems. It, the floor just wasn't very strong, and so the, the squirrels and the chickmunks, they just, you know, ate a little hole in the bottom of the, of the floor, and they could get in and out, and that was great for them. And uh, I was resourceful, and so I would go, and I would take more pieces of wood and cover up the holes that they had created, and they would proceed to put a new hole right next to it, and just all over the floor I had random pieces of wood, Finally, I got as helpful as I could, and I put down a big section right in the corner, and they started putting holes through the walls now. And so I, I tried everything I could. I put chicken wire around the bottom of the shed. I uh, did use a squirrel cage and was successful in catching one of the squirrels. I remember putting it in the trunk and driving it far away and letting it go. And I don't know if it was the same squirrel or other squirrels or what, but I, it didn't seem to make the problem go away even slightly. Finally, I won the battle by completely eliminating the shed altogether. Nothing left of it, unless you go to Google Earth a few years ago, you could maybe still see the impression of what was there at one point in time. And if you wonder why there's lots of homeless animals in Indiana, that's why. Temporary solutions are insufficient in addressing permanent problems. 
every time I tried to fix the problem, what actually happened is it was it further evidence, it made it even more clear that the permanent problem wasn't being solved, and it was like letting everyone know there's a bigger issue going on. Every time I'd go buy more screws or go find another piece of wood, it was just telling the world that there's a problem, that the shed itself was rotten. The wood wasn't treated, it wasn't the right, it wasn't put together the right way, it wasn't established in the right spot, and it, it, it just wasn't going to be repaired. And what the people needed to understand who were coming out of a, a, a Jewish system with so much ritual and so much legacy and the priesthood and the law and the prophets and all that heritage coming across over hundreds and hundreds of years, they needed to understand that there was a need for a permanent solution to sin. And although the Levitical priesthood and so many of the things were important and there was a message there and there was sincerity there, it wasn't the solution they needed. And they needed to let go of the shadow or not cling to the shadow when the reality had come. The reality being Jesus. And he was very different than the temporary solution, as it were, of the Levitical priesthood and all the systems that came along with it. Jesus was the reality that was promised before the Levitical priesthood ever came into being. And now that he had come, he was sufficient. In fact, he was the permanent solution to their permanent problem. And we see that here in this chapter, this being explained, and we're going to see first the need for a new priesthood. And I know we've talked about some of this before, but it's so important to this letter uh, in Hebrews that he's going to continue to unpack it and revisit it and, and explain it uh, because it's just an important theological thing that they need to understand and we can appreciate as well. The need for a new priesthood we see, if the Levitical priesthood was sufficient to cover sin or to make atonement, atonement has this idea of at-one-ment with God. This is our way to have this relationship with God. If somehow atonement for sin could be made through the Levitical priesthood and all the hundreds of sacrifices and we sin and we get it taken care of that way, if that was sufficient, then we wouldn't need a change. We wouldn't need something new or more meaningful or more permanent to come. And it says that in verse 11, if therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there that another priest should rise? And not an Aaronic priest, not a child of Aaron in the lineage of Aaron, not a Levite, but after the order or the similitude of Melchizedek, and not called after the order of Aaron. And of course, the answer is it wasn't sufficient. It was weak. It involved hundreds of priests over hundreds of years. It involved countless sacrifices. And you can read in, in Kings and Solomon when they dedicate the temple, all the sacrifices both offered in worship and also to make atonement to, as a covering for sin. And all of these things uh, were taking place. And because people kept sinning, sacrifices were continuing to be offered, and it didn't bring about an eternal solution for anyone. In fact, I'm going to read, and you're invited to join me in the book of Leviticus. I'm going to read from two passages here. One is just to get a quick snapshot of what it meant to uh, make a sacrifice for sin in Leviticus chapter 4. And then we'll read a few verses from Leviticus chapter 10. <clears throat> we begin reading in Leviticus 4. 
And this is a part of the Levitical law about how we are to handle making sacrifices for sin. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a soul shall sin through ignorance, so there's different ways sin comes to pass, but if a soul comes through ignorance against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which ought not to be done and shall do against any of them, now what do we do? Well, if the priest that is anointed do sin according to the sin of the people, then let him bring for his sin, which he has sinned, a young bullock without blemish unto the Lord for a sin offering. And he shall bring the bullock unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand upon the bullock's head and kill the bullock before the Lord. And the priest that is anointed shall take the bullock's blood and bring it to the tabernacle of the congregation. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle the blood seven times before the Lord before the veil of the sanctuary. Well, we, we've learned without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And every time a bullock was sacrificed to make atonement for sin, we're seeing this picture. Every time a lamb was sacrificed on Passover, we, we saw this picture. In the morning and evening sacrifices, we see this picture that the people sin, the priests sin. A sacrifice is made uh, to make atonement for those. It was a covering for sin. And so we see sacrifices all throughout the Old Testament. And then we see, so, so those sacrifices were not a permanent solution to anything. And then we see in Leviticus chapter 10, we see the two sons of Aaron. Aaron was the priest uh, his two sons, Nadab and, uh, and Abihu. And we see that, that even the sons of Aaron uh, were imperfect priests. And it, it tells just a few verses here in this whole setting in chapter 8 and 9 and 10 about uh, the process of establishing them as priests. But it says that Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And so they did something improperly. They almost assuredly did so with a, 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 a wicked heart, a heart that wasn't in reverence to God, and they were disobedient in this. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is, the Lord, this is that the Lord spake, saying, I, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh to me, and before all the people will, I will be glorified. And so we see that Aaron's sons failed in a very dramatic way and were killed of God. You won't have to turn there, but do you remember the story of Hannah? Hannah was praying for a son. She couldn't have a son. And, God, and she said, if I do have a son, or she said, I dedicate it to you, Lord. And she does have a son named Samuel, and it's Eli who's in the house of the Lord as priest. And remember, Eli was a, a good guy, and, and, and God used him. But it says that Eli's sons in 1 Samuel 2.12 were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. Imagine that. These are the sons. They're taking sacrifices. They're offering them to the Lord, but they certainly were imperfect. Well, there must be a, a different answer. This sin problem is a permanent problem. It creates distance between mankind and God, and there has been distance. We can look back at Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and his generation. We can, we can go through any period of time in, in, in human history, and we see this, this distance between men and God. How are we going to make atonement for our sin? How can we be one with God? How can we have peace with the holy God? It's not going to be through this mechanism. And so we, we realize, or we should be realizing about now, that 
The answer is the sacrifice of Christ. In the incarnation, He comes and He's John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And so they, 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 these, these, these had heard about Christ, and they had heard that He had been sent, and they heard that He had done the miracles, and He lived the perfect life, and He had died, and He had laid down His, his life on the cross. But what they're trying to reconcile here is, okay, if, if He can accomplish all of that, and He did accomplish that, that's very different than the Levitical priesthood, particularly because Jesus wasn't a Levite. What tribe did he come from? We know this, right? We've, we've heard this, that Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. He's the, the Davidic covenant, right? To King David, that on the throne would be established forever. And so we see that Jesus is connected with Judah in a particular way. And so the question comes up, maybe not to you and me, but certainly to those who would have been aware of all of this. Jesus isn't a Levite. And so he, he brings it up in verse 12. He says, the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity, a change also of the law. There's something about the whole system. The book of Leviticus is a, is a key one of this. You can go read it tonight. Well, it might take you a few nights. Um, but uh, it, it, there's a whole system there that was, uh, as a whole, was pointing to something that needed to come. It had a place and a purpose that God had established but it's like a big giant neon sign pointing to something that would need to come that would actually be the permanent solution. And so there needed to be a different type of priest and a change in the law. Jesus referenced this. He says something similar in Mark chapter 2 and verse 2. You might remember it, but he talks about how that when a man is sewing a new piece of cloth on an old garment, uh, he said, he said um, no man soweth a piece of new cloth in an old garment, else the new piece that is, willed up, that is filled up taketh away from the old, and the rent is made worse. And so new cloth on an old garment, the old will tear, and it just isn't going to hold up. He, he, he tells it another way. He says, no man putteth new wine into old bottles or, or wineskins, else the new wine doth birth the bottles, and the wine is spilled, and the bottles will be marred, but new wine must be put in new bottles." He says there's a change, there's something significantly different, not just a patch, but an entirely something new that is going to come. And of course, Jesus brings that true and permanent salvation in the work that he will accomplish. Well, let's look back, look back at verse number 13, and that's what the Hebrew writer uh, shares with us. He brings it up. He says about Jesus, for he of whom these things are spoken, Jesus pertaineth to another tribe of which no man give attendance at the altar. And he's speaking of Judah. He's, no one from the tribe of Judah worked as a priest at the altar. Verse 14, for it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. So he makes the point. We need a new priesthood. We need something different than the Levitical priesthood could offer. It was a temporary covering for sin. It didn't permanently cover anything. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, but he, but, and so there needs to be a new priesthood. And then we see the basis for Jesus' priesthood. And he's going to revisit something he spoke about briefly earlier, and that is that Jesus' priesthood is much like that of the priest, but is also different in some significant ways. And he brings up Melchizedek. And again, the story of Melchizedek is that in Genesis chapter 14, a man named Abraham had a lot of cattle and a, and a promise from God that in him all the nations of the world would be blessed. He'd have children that would outnumber the, the stars and the sand of the sea. Uh, and God was going to fulfill that promise ultimately in a child named Isaac. 
Um, Abraham also has a relative named Lot, a nephew named Lot. And uh, while they're both navigating, they're, they're both shepherds, and uh, Lot finds his home in a city called Sodom. Uh, there are four kings who come, and they, uh, they capture Sodom. They defeat several of those neighboring towns, and they take all the captives with them. Abraham hears about this, and he gathers all of his trained men, and he, he leads out after these kings, and he has a victory. He's able to recover all the captives and a lot of loot. And uh, as he is uh, rejoicing in the victory, he meets a man named Melchizedek as he comes back to Sodom. He has a brief interaction with Sodom, the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom says, go ahead and deliver, give back all the captives, but keep all the loot. And, and Abraham says, no, I'm not going to do that, and he gives everything back. But before that happens, he meets a man named Melchizedek, who the Bible says is a priest and king. He's a king priest. He's the king of Salem and the king of righteousness, and he is a priest of God. And we're reminded that uh, there, were, um, there were others who weren't part of Abraham's family who worshiped God. We think of Adam, of course, and Eve. We, we think of Seth. We think of Noah, who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We think of men like Job. And we come across someone like Melchizedek. And uh, we, we, we read that he met Abraham with bread and wine. And so he provided some food for, for him. And then he blessed Abraham. And the, the greater always did the blessing of the lesser. And so we just see that in the relationship of Melchizedek and Abraham, he was greater. And Abraham did something very surprising. Something that it's just... Amazing that it's in the Bible in those few verses. He paid tithes to Melchizedek. He gave a tenth of all the possessions, all that that he had captured. He gave that to Melchizedek, the priest king. And, uh, and, and in that whole interaction, which is just a few verses long, we don't learn anything else about Melchizedek except for the, the verse there in Psalms 110. And now we have the author of Hebrews who's saying, if we think about Melchizedek, who has no genealogy, he wasn't from the tribe of Levi. He didn't have a... We don't, we don't have any record of any parents. We don't have any record of any children. We don't have a birthday. We don't have a death day, a retirement day. We don't know really anything about him. But this is the eternality of Melchizedek, his order not being connected with the lineage of Aaron. This is like Jesus. Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so he talks about it now in verse number 15. He's talking about this change of the law. He's talking about, uh, he's talking about this other kind of priesthood, and this is the basis for it in verse 15. And yet it is yet far more, it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek there ariseth another priest, who is made not after the law of carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. Melchizedek was never was born, never died. We don't see anything about that in the Bible. And that is true of Christ. Of course, he was born as a, as a baby, but, but he, existed, he existed eternally before that, before the incarnation. He exists entirely after that. And so the endless life, and of course, even death on the cross wasn't enough to, uh, he was victorious over that. And so verse 17, thou art a priest after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh to God. The law made nothing perfect. The temple and all of its beauty, 
made nothing perfect. Hundreds of priests, thousands of priests, not all of them were, were like Nahab and Abihu. Not all of them were like the sons of Eli. There were many good, sincere-hearted priests. But what happened? One priest after the other lived and served, maybe for a lifetime. And then what did they do? They died. Uh, people made sacrifices for sin. How many, how many years out of how many years was it required for them to still offer a Passover lamb and offer all the sacrifices year after year, day after day, month after month. The people continued to sin, priests continued to be born and then die and go into service and out of service, and it didn't provide anything permanent. The law was temporary. It was the shadow. Jesus, when he came, he was the fulfillment of all of those other pictures that were pointed to Christ. Christ is the one who can provide salvation. He is the one who can provide atonement. He is the one who can bring us to have to be at one with God. Now, we can think about this for just a moment. How did people get saved in the Old Testament? Was it through the sacrifices that were offered that somehow their sins were covered and paid for? Because they were certainly commanded to do that, and the, and, and, and the picture of all of that we see is every uh, you could just imagine a dad coming with his children and coming to the temple with a, uh, some sort of animal and the animal would be slain and the children are asking, what does this mean? And the dad would explain to them what, what they were doing. The reality is all of men's sin, whether old or new, only has one, only has one sacrifice to cover the sins of the world. And that's Jesus. And so in the Old Testament, when a dad would come to the temple or to the courtyard or, uh, of the tabernacle and he would come and present the, the, the lamb, they didn't know Jesus by name. They didn't know, but they knew the Messiah would come. They knew about the, in Christ. They knew about uh, some faint images of the future, but they were looking ahead at what God was going to permanently provide in terms of salvation. We look back at that same sacrifice, that same thing that was taken care of for us on the cross of Calvary. And so it's in Christ where permanent salvation comes for the past, for, for them and for us. But it would be a silly thing. It would be an unfortunate thing. It would be a wrong, sinful thing to cling to the shadow when the substance has come. And now we have Christ to continue to, to, to stick around and, and place our hope and trust in this shadow, this picture, when the reality has come. I know many of you, when you were dating, maybe didn't have a cell phone with a picture of your boyfriend or girlfriend on it, but some of you had a picture, right, of your boyfriend or girlfriend if you weren't around, maybe so you could remember them, but it would be a shame to want to just live with the picture and marry the picture somehow and not have anything to do with the real person. The picture has a place, but the substance is what we trust in, what we hope in, and, and our, our salvation is found in, in Christ. Just imagine a little girl refusing to grow up, refusing to trade in her toy kitchen for a real one, or a little boy refusing to trade in the toy tractor for a real tractor that can actually plant crops and, and help provide for, for, for a family. Me spending endless years fixing a shed that was rotten to its core and waiting until the sixth or seventh year of living there to finally realize it needed to be rebuilt if there was going to be any Hope for keeping the squirrels out. Now that Jesus had come, 
They were to follow him, trust in his sacrifice, and not rely on the sacrificial system that they had grown up with, but understand what it meant to have Jesus and to see Jesus and to follow Jesus. In verse 19, it says, For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by which we draw nigh unto God. Some of you are reading through our Bible schedule, our Bible reading schedule, and you would have read in Mark chapter 15 about how on the cross of Calvary, Jesus was crucified and he was hanging there. He says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And of course, ultimately gives up the ghost. And it says that at that point in Mark chapter 15, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. In the temple, there was one place, you, you, even if you were the priest, you never went. The Holy of Holies. That was the very presence of God. The priest went in once a year to put blood on the mercy seat. And there was very special conditions around all of that. What does it mean, first of all, for this big curtain to be torn? And all of a sudden, those who are standing in that area, they have open access now to the very presence of God. I don't remember how tall that curtain is, but it's far taller than a person is. It is 30 feet or something like that. And to be torn top to bottom meant that God tore it. He was saying that in Christ and in the sacrifice of Christ, this access to God is made open to us. We can come boldly, where? To the throne, the very presence of God in a way that could never be possible. Atonement could never be made without without the cross of Christ, without the sacrifice of Christ. And because Jesus is different than any of the Levitical priests, that's a permanent solution, a permanent solution to men's sins. And that means something to us today. Well, we see the need for a new priesthood in verses 11 through 14, the basis for Jesus' priesthood, where we talk more about how he is uh, contrasted with the Aaronic priesthood by the Melchizedek, one, and then thirdly, the surety of a better testament. So verse 20 and verse 22, uh, through verse 22, speaks of this. And so let's, let's, let me get back to Hebrews, and we'll read in verse 20. And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest, for those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that saith unto him, the Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, By so much was Jesus made surety of a better covenant. Jesus' priesthood was guaranteed by an oath, by God. And we talked about that earlier in chapter number 7. It made his priesthood superior and more secure and immutable, unchanging, that our hope is sure and steadfast, and and God confirming it with an oath means that it, it's, 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 we can stand on it. Our hope is, is not just in the word of some person or in some country or in some church or some religious figures. It's in the word of God himself. Our eternal salvation is found in Christ, and he's the surety of that. It's like the song says, right? My faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. But the problem is, isn't it? We, there are many who trust in their community, their friends. They trust in their church. They trust in their religion. They trust in their good works. They trust in their record. They trust in 
happen, happen chance. They, they trust in whatever all of that is. And we can look around at religions all over the world. And we can look at, have conversations with people all around us. But what about trusting in Jesus? There's sufficiency in Christ. We trust in Him. And that's the point of it. There's surety. There's a better uh, way to think about this. It's, it's through belief in Christ. It's trusting in Him and trusting in the Word of God, the promises He's made. We also see, uh, fourthly, that there's an, that, that the, in, the eternal intercession of Jesus. And so, uh, verse, uh, verses 23 it teaches us that in Jesus, because his priesthood is not like the Levitical priesthood, it's unchanging, it's never-ending, he's not going to retire. The sacrifice he provided uh, is sufficient for all past and all present and all future sins. Uh, you can trust in, in him, and he won't die. In verse 23, and they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. They they couldn't continue. They, they all died. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto him by God, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Well, we could talk a lot about intercession, what it means to have Jesus interceding for them, for you, for all who trust in him. But I thought it'd be helpful to just read from Romans chapter 8. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. And so when we think about our relationship with God, who can condemn us? Well, there are people in our life who know us, right? Some of them may have even uh, documented things that we've done wrong. Um, maybe you've been caught on camera. Maybe the Ohio Corrections people have your name and picture on their wall somewhere. Whatever our past, whatever our sin, whatever record it is, we're not, what we aren't doing is hiding that. What we're not doing is sort of saying, my good outweighs my bad, and so I can kind of cover over my bad with my good. What we're not doing is saying, hey, there's a bunch of rituals that you can do to try to kind of get yourself out of the hole. What we're not trying to do is say, hey, I can kind of cover my past in some way and cover my sin in some way, and I don't, you know, and I look good, and I just got to play this game. No, we don't need to do that with God. First of all, He is already knows us better than we know ourselves. And so we can be honest with God, and in Christ, who makes intercession for us, he's not somehow advocating for us as if he's telling God to overlook our sin, but rather Jesus says to the Father, look at me, look at the cross of Calvary. I've already covered the sin, made atonement for the sin of this man or this woman, and so look at me. We're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And so when he says, who condemneth? It's not that someone can't say something about us, but in Christ, we can't be condemned. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then there's a long list of things. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, 
nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. To be in Christ is to know God, is to have peace with God, is to not be under condemnation. There is no condemnation in Christ. To be outside of Christ is to have the wrath of God and all of our guilt just crashing down on our head. And there's no other solution provided, no other way of peace with God than what's provided for us in Christ. They needed to recognize that to have Christ was to have everything. To not have Christ was to have nothing. And then lastly, we see that Jesus is the perfect priest. We see that in verse 26. For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Jesus was perfect because he was holy. It says that he was tempted in all points like we are and yet without sin. Jesus was the perfect priest because Jesus was harmless. John the Baptist will say of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the, the, sin of the world. And, and, and his innocence and his, in, that he had, had sin pictures the Lamb. And also his, what John says, right? The, the, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. That was his desire. Jesus was the perfect priest because he was undefiled. Jesus was the perfect priest because he was separate from sinners. Now, Jesus ate with sinners. Jesus talked with sinners. Jesus touched sinners. Jesus spent time with them, even intimate time talking with them. Ultimately laid his, down his life for sinners. But he, he wasn't one of them. He didn't participate in that sin. Jesus was perfect because he was the God-man. He was fully God and fully man. And so when, he, when his sacrifice was, uh, was, was provided, it wasn't simply one man dying for another or one man dying for a bunch of others. It was God sending his son to, to, to become a man to take upon himself the sin of the world. In verse 27, he, he, he says that, doesn't he? Who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins, and then for the peoples, for this he did once when he offered up himself. And so Jesus wasn't like the priest who could offer a temporary fix to a permanent problem, who could sort of cover our sin, always waiting for the, fault, the ultimate sacrifice, always waiting for a permanent solution, always waiting for eternal salvation that never seemed to be there for them and, and the constant uh, trials of the, of the Jewish people as they, uh, as they were stewards of the law of God, as they were the, the vessel that helped articulate what was God's promises and what was going to come, but never saw the fulfillment of it until Christmas Day when we, when we see Jesus come into the world and then ultimately what took place on the cross and then the resurrection. Well, Jesus is the author and finisher of eternal salvation to everyone who believes. So Hebrews chapter 7 tells us that there needs to be a new priesthood, different than the Levitical priesthood, different than the hundreds and thousands of priests who lived and died and lived and died and lived and died. Some were good and some were bad, but they were all sinners. 
It needed to be, uh, the basis of the priesthood was going to be much greater than that of Aaron, which was temporary, which was something that was provided in the, the law of Moses and Leviticus. We can read all about it and all the instructions, but what Jesus came to provide was far greater than, than Aaron or the, or the Levites. We see that Jesus' intercession for us is eternal. He was the perfect high priest who offered the perfect sacrifice, which once and for all has taken care of sin. We can trust in Him. We can hope in Him. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ. And so what are we challenged to do now? Those of us who don't care maybe so much about Levi and Aaron and all of those things are interesting to us, but, but what does that tell us to do? Well, we also need to lay aside any reliance on our personal righteousness or religious rituals as the way to have permanent salvation. There are people all around, you know, the beginning of the year, I'm resolving to, to do better. I'm going to be a good guy this year. I'm going to be a good woman this year. Well, I appreciate the, the effort, but what we're challenged to do is once and for all lay our righteousness aside and accept the righteousness of Christ. To follow Him and not try to figure it out on, on our own and to trust Him and give our heart and our life to Him. I'll just read the words one more time. My faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. We all look to Christ. We all look to him as our Savior. When we are tempted to look at ourselves, we're tempted to look at another guru who we can follow, the challenge is look to Christ. He's sufficient. He's the author and finisher of our faith. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the different parts of Scripture which teach us about who you are and the book of Hebrews, which seems to just be every page is about Christ and his sufficiency for us. What I do pray that you'd help anyone who has not yet put their faith and trust in Christ to do so, to lay aside our attachment to anything else that would prevent us from, from letting go and trusting you. There's so many temptations and sins and sometimes religious things in our background. And uh, Lord, for us just to have the clarity from your spirit, from your word, to know that we can trust you and you're sufficient, follow you. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to stay close to you even as we live our lives as Christians and to just have a pure heart and clear eyes to, to follow you faithfully. We pray that you'd give us the wisdom to do that. We ask it in Christ's name, amen.